Welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah, and I'm here with Mariana again. What is up? Um, not much. <laughs> not much new. Just doing the usual. I'm still volunteering with kids, and that's been fun. That's been fun actually, because like taking kids out, um, like on hikes and stuff. That's it's always really fun because you know kids are just full of wonder and magic. So, yep, but that's it for me. Yeah, that sounds fun. Um, yeah, I feel like the the this is exactly how the fast last few few episodes have gone. Like, mm-hmm. what's up? Nothing much. <laughs> Literally nothing. I know because I think we were I think we were work. saying off. We, yeah, we were, I think we were saying off mic that we like had these ideas to like incorporate like oh stories from the field and like record stuff yeah. in the field and then we both <laughs> don't aren't doing. <laughs> Um, yeah. so yeah, I'm, things are less interesting for me. I am going to San Diego this weekend oh, nice. to, um, for a few days to visit family and, um, do something else. And so, yeah, cool. That's about it. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Um, so- anyways, we should just go right into just start talking because we have a lot to cover today. Yeah. And we, we probably shouldn't e- I probably shouldn't even have put a news article in here because we just have so much to cover, but I just thought that the timing of this um this news piece was was good and just because I feel like everything we've been talking about in these poaching episodes I just it's just they've just been a downer, you know, and this yeah. news is for once some good news. Um so basically in the past week or two there's been um, it's been announced that there was, um, some camera trap, a camera trap study done in Nepal last year. And the study showed a nine, a 19% increase in the tiger population between, um, from 2014 to 2018, um, from 198 tigers to 235 tigers, which doesn't seem like a lot because it's not, but the first census in Nepal in 2009 only found 121 tigers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, you know, with this population growth rate, if it can be maintained, it means that the tiger population will be doubled by 2022, which was actually a goal that was established by um, all the countries that have tigers back during a meeting in 2010. So I think it's just um, kind of a, a cool Cool results and glad to hear that because Nepal has is sort of, you know, acting like a model for success thanks to the their commitment to protecting wildlife and evolving communities and um, mitigating conflict with tigers. So anyways, some good news, the rare good news yeah. in the wildlife world. Yeah, yeah. No, I I like the opportunity to give some good news because <laughs> we are yeah. like gloom and doom. Um, yeah. yeah, so <laughs> speaking of gloom and doom. Uh, today's episode <laughs> po- uh so we're 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 wrapping up today's um we're wrapping up our series on poaching with today's episode and today we'll be discussing the issue of wildlife trade um specifically the international wildlife tra- or sorry the illegal wildlife trade um which is of course the leading cause of poaching so while the topic of poaching involves exclusively illegal activity, uh, trade involves both legal and illegal activities because, of course, there's a legal and an illegal market, and they are not mutually exclusive. Um, they they're on top of each other all the time, and with 
that sort of thing. But um, so keep that in mind as we discuss this topic. There are really two categories of wildlife trade. You may hear us calling it trafficking or IWT, which is just um, the initialism for illegal wildlife trade. Um, so the first category is trade in animal products, um, as such as dead animal parts. Uh, and the second category is trade in live animals, which can be for pets or for zoos, um, even breeding programs, actually. Uh, so to uh, give you a little bit of scope here, the International Wildlife... Uh, I'm like, I keep seeing international. <laughs> the, the illegal wildlife trade is the fourth largest global illegal trade in the world. That's after drugs, counterfeiting, and human trafficking, um, which get a lot of attention, of course. Um, but the illegal wildlife trade is, is just as bad as those and um, very close behind. Yeah, I actually saw one source that said it was, and I don't know what they're basing it on. I guess, you know, it's just estimates because you can't come up with actual values for illegal trade like we've said before. But they said that it's as bad as the drug trade. Yeah, I've um, actually like seen that probably too. if we were able to, if we were able to, know mm -hmm. everything about it, it would probably be comparable to the drug trade. Yeah, I think you're probably right because because so much of it is underground and illicit. I mean, I've, over the last few episodes, we've been giving numbers or we've been like, well, this is, you know, an estimate because we can't, you know, it's not like anybody's doing um, thorough research and, and interviewing <laughs> everybody in the market. So, um, yeah, we don't have accurate or precise numbers, I should say. So... Before we get too far into it, it's Jonah's turn to be the historian today. So, Jonah, why don't you go ahead and give us a background on trade? Yeah, so I think I really like how we've we've looked at the history of poaching because I think, um, and with I think it's important to look at the history of all you know issues in wildlife and the world, just because we tend to think that these are these are new issues that haven't been around for a while, but I mean, throughout history, owning or possessing live wild animals or having certain animal products or parts um, has been considered fashionable or like a sign of wealth or power or for religious purposes. So this is by no means a new thing. This is something that's basically ingrained in so many human cultures. Um, and it's been going on for thousands of years. Um, it's just the way that it occurs has changed, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I just wanted to give some examples because some of these are just are crazy and, and very interesting. Um, and I think I really like thinking about like historical wildlife stuff. And I, I think in a couple weeks um, when you're gone, we're going to have Camden back as a guest host. And I think we're going to go over like historical wildlife geography and, and stuff because it's, yeah. it's really interesting. And this will probably talk more about some of the stuff that I'm about to say. Um, but some examples of um, just how the wildlife trade and, and possessing wildlife parts and live animals has been in history. Um, okay, so first example, um, ancient Rome, which... We could talk so much about their wildlife trade and collecting and stuff. But um, I was reading an article about this one politician in particular, and this wasn't uncommon, um, but he was running for office and 
he was he wanted to have leopards a collection of leopards to gain favor from the citizens during the election and so he kept writing his friend the emperor asking if he would use his authority to catch leopards so that he could have them on display to you know woo the people into voting for him because his opponent had leopards and he wrote like tons of letters <laughs> saying like do you want this guy to win like cuz he's he's got all the votes cuz he has these leopards and so he was like kept asking the emperor to get him leopards which is just absurd. <laughs> Can you imagine like politicians doing that nowadays? Oh my god! Um, and the emperor was like, "I don't feel comfortable using my power that way." And like he didn't like the idea, and so he w- he was like making stuff up, like, "Oh, the, the the leopards have been hunted out here. Like, there's no more." And it was really fascinating reading about it. Yeah. Um, but anyways, that's that's one example from ancient Rome. Um, also, the Egyptians were big on keeping wild animals, um, particularly for like religious and supernatural purposes. Um, so some of them were even buried with their like mummified pet monkeys um, and other animals. But the, you know, one example that I read was this one princess that had, she was mummified, like holding her mummified pet monkey. Um, and then Egyptians also kept animals that were like the symbols of their gods in their temples so they had like baboons or whatever certain birds in their temples or even crocodiles you know many of the animals that represented their deities they had them just free roaming in their temples because um they revered them or whatever um also this is really interesting um the ancient maya there's a lot of artwork from Central America that depicts kings holding jaguar cubs in their mm. laps. Yeah. Um, and archaeologists have found bones of a lot of non-native wildlife species in Mayan cities. So not only were they, you know, keeping native animals like jaguars and probably trafficking them as well, but also um, they were receiving animals from other places because... They found bones of non-native wildlife in Mayan cities. Um, Also sort of related to that, um, scarlet macaw feathers have been found in archaeological sites in the American Southwest, especially in around New Mexico, in areas near you. Um, But scarlet macaws have never been native to that area. They've always been in southern Mexico and Central America down in South America. Um, But... A combination of field archaeology and genetics has shown that macaws from southern Mexico were transported. Um, oh, there's a deer at my window. <laughs> this really scared me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, a combination of field archaeology and genetics has shown that macaws from southern Mexico were transported to northern Mexico where they were bred at like a breeding center and then they were traded with Native Americans in modern day New Mexico. Wow. And so it you could read more about this, like from some National Geographic article articles that go more into the details of it. But really fascinating about this old trade in scarlet live scarlet macaws and scarlet macaw feathers. Yeah. Um, and then finally, um, cheetahs have historically been a animal that's been kept as pets by royalty in um, parts of Asia and the Middle East, and they were even like tamed as pets or were tamed and trained to hunt. Um, 
And Akbar I, who was a ruler of the Indian subcontinent in the 17th century, supposedly he owned like thousands of cheetahs throughout his life um, and used them to hunt. And there's some interesting stuff you can read about that. But even today, like that um, owning cheetahs as like a sign of wealth is sort of ingrained in in people in the Middle East because um, cheetahs are are kept by people in the Middle East still. And it's, it's actually a big issue in that area. Um, and it's like one of the biggest areas where cheetahs are live cheetahs are trafficked, um, just because of the history of that. So basically, uh, just to reiterate, you know, the wildlife trade isn't something new. Um, I think it just used to be a lot more overt, um, and open, and now it's sort of behind the scenes and because it's illegal, it's kind of underground. And so it's not as obvious to us, but it's it's always been very present, um, just in a different way. And today we just have it on a different scale thanks to how connected we are globally um, and also just dealing with, you know, the way world economies are and, and stuff like that. So um, anyways... This is nothing new, everything we're talking about today. Um, so why don't you why don't you take us over the, the categories of the demand that drives the supply for wildlife trade? Yes. So as a refresher, we'll we'll run through the categories of demand. They're different but not necessarily separate. And you'll you'll notice that the only difference between the present time and what ancient civilizations were doing is just temporal space. Um, but the categories were pretty much the same, especially the social status categories. Um, so like I just said, the first is social status symbols, which includes live animals, animal parts, and delicacies. Um, we know that's a big problem too. The second category is religion and superstition. This is mostly to do with animal sacrifices and parts of Ritual objects. Jonah was talking about burial sites in ancient Egypt. That would be that would fall under that category. Uh, also, medicinal applications, which is I, I believe I said last episode, this is the one that's covered in the news the most because um, TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, is a really popular news topic. Um, but really, this is worldwide. Uh, traditional Chinese medicine is not the only traditional um, medicine that requires animals and animal parts, especially. And of course, the exotic pet fixation, which we'll be focusing a lot on today. Uh, you can, uh, returning back to Jonah's quick history on this, uh, you can see how ingrained this fixation um, has always been in cultures around the world. It's, it's a global fixation. Currently, the demand is highest in Europe and the United States. So those are the, those are the categories of demand. To put it simply, um, of course, it's much more complicated than that, but just to put it simply, and I ran through those really quick because I did talk about them last episode. So if you didn't listen to last episode, you totally should. In, in fact, you should listen to part one, part two, and then this part three because um, you'll get much better context um, that way. So widening back out to all illegal wildlife trade, not just pet, say, pet fixation, but all trade, dead or alive, whole or in parts. We have been promising to talk about CITES for the last two episodes. We've been mentioning it. Uh, so we're going to talk about it now. So CITES is the Convention 
on the International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. So that's a pretty long name, but um, so this is why we call it CITES. Uh, and it's an international agreement signed by governments, global governments, which aims to regulate and monitor trade in live wildlife and products, as well as plants, so that uh, the sustainability of wild populations are not more threatened uh, by trade, because of course they face a lot of threats. So CITES is concerned with the, with international trade regulation, not enforcement of poaching. This is on the on the trade level that um, the convention is concerned with. So 80 countries signed the initial agreement in Washington, D.C. in 1963. So this has been around for quite a, quite a while. Signatory countries are known as parties, and they adhere to the agreements of the convention voluntarily. So there's no, like, the convention is 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 not legally binding. They, they agree to it voluntarily. It's just like the Whaling Convention. So this agreement, the convention between the governments, it provides a framework um, that's to be respected and followed by the parties. And the parties themselves have their own domestic legislation to ensure that CITES is implemented on the national level. So it's, it's quite complicated, but everybody is required to uh, regulate trade according to their agreements. Uh, so currently 183 countries are signatories. Remember, we started with 80 in 1963. So currently 183 countries um, have signed on. That's, that's the gross majority of countries in the world. Some countries who aren't signatories include North Korea, not a surprise, Haiti, (laughs) 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 Um, Western Sahara, Turkmenistan, East Timor, Andorra, South Sudan, um, and five countries that make up the islands of the Western Pacific. So uh, if you want to look that up, we'll we'll provide a a link to the CITES site, of course. Um, It's actually... A really interesting website. It's, I mean, for me, I find it fun to go through, but I don't know if everybody would. There's so much information on there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah, and they have. I love. Well, they're little maps. So when Mm -hmm. I when I put together this, like the countries, some of these countries, like some of these countries, people have probably never heard of, like Andorra or yeah, yeah, whatever. But um, their 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 map isn't super accurate. Because I was like, there's a hundred, there's like a hundred ninety five countries, uh, you know, recognized in the world, and a, and the CITES site says one hundred eighty three countries are signatories. But when I look at the map, there was only like two that weren't colored in. Okay, yeah, or something. And I was like, one. I had to like do some research. Yeah, so they should have. They should like. I think they should advertise it more that all every country in the world except twelve are part of the convention, which I think is huge, especially since. The beginnings in 1963. Um, anyways, they should work on that part of their website, I think. Yeah, totally. And I like that. Uh, not, I don't like that, but you can see that there's a pattern between the uh, among the countries that aren't signatories. There's a lot of instability, whether political or socioeconomic. Um, there's a lot of there's conflict. Uh, South Sudan is is a big one. It's also a newer country, so who knows what's what'll happen um, with South Sudan? Yeah, I don't know why Andorra. That's weird because. I actually, I don't know why Andorra would. I don't know anything about Andorra. It's between, I learned about it like when the Olympics, one of the Olympics Uh recently and like they had the sign Andorra and I was like, what the heck is that? (laughs) And it's this tiny country, like it's the size of a town between Spain and Portugal, like on the border of Spain and Portugal. Oh, interesting. 
And they have their own language yeah. too that's different from Portuguese and Spanish and um really interesting. Huh. And then West Sahara is like it's recognized as its own country but it's like very disputed and so um uh yeah, like it if it is if it's disputed whether it's part of Morocco or not and if it is part of Morocco like if it ends up being part of Morocco or whatever, then that means that. Anyways, I don't yeah. know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> that there's less people, less countries that aren't part of CITES. Right. Oh my goodness. Basically. Yeah. The the gross majority um, of them are signed on, um, which is good, and it's a good thing the U.S. is still signed on because we know <laughs> the current political climate. Anyway, so <laughs> how CITES works. Um, so basically, all movement, import, export, etc. of of the species that are listed in the convention, of which there are many, uh, must be authorized through a licensing system. Um, and remember, each party of the convention is required um, to do this themselves. So they're required to designate one or more management authorities, like an agency, uh, to administer the licensing system, as well as one or more scientific authorities to advise the management authority on the effects of trade on, on each species. So this is a real um, scientifically um, informed sort of a, these are scientifically informed regulations that, that um, they're supposed to put in. Uh, so management authorities are supposed to keep detailed records of trade and seizures for CITES. Of course, this effort varies among parties, um, which can confound an accurate understanding of trade. As we were saying before, um, precision isn't exactly, um, we don't, we're not exactly precise on, on numbers or um, trade routes, those sort of things. Uh, so, uh, how do we regulate the species? So the species on the lists are, the species under CITES are listed in three appendices, one of three appendices based on protection status. Um, so we're going to go through appendix one, two, and three, uh, starting with the, the most stringent, which is appendix one. These are species that are threatened with extinction and trade permits are only licensed in exceptional circumstances. We have close to 700 animal species listed in this category. Uh, the next is Appendix 2, species that aren't necessarily threatened with extinction, but in which trade could potentially affect wild populations. Uh, it's close to 5,000 animals are listed here. And then the late, and then the least stringent, uh, or the least regulated, is Appendix 3. These are species that are protected in at least one party country, and that country has asked the other parties to help control the trade of that species. And about 200 animal species are listed here. Um, so... This, this number that you found, Jonah, total 6,000 species, less than 6,000 species that's, are listed. That's from the CITES that's website. That's insane. They have like a table, a breakdown of the number of species in each appendix and the number the number of animal and plant species in each appendix. Um, and I was, I was shocked. Like there's more than 6,000 species of just birds alone. Yeah. Wow. So I don't understand... It, it's pretty, I'm, I'm just in shock about it because, um, that's, that's hardly any yep. yeah. compared to, I mean, I'm not saying that animals are more important than plants, but there's 30,000 plant species listed on there. Right. Yeah. And I think that it's probably easier to observe, um, the declining wildlife populations, Excellent. like generally, 
so like you'd think that there would be a ton more animals listed but i think this probably okay if if a, if all the animals in the world were listed on CITES somehow i don't think it would necessarily make the trade go away or whatever mm-hmm. but i think that ha- all these animals that aren't listed that are able to be traded i think it kind of diminishes the significance of the effect of trade on wildlife populations if there's only 6,000 of all the animal species in the world listed. Right. And like, I, it might break it down by mammals and birds and reptiles and fish. And I think it does break it down that way. And that probably would be even more enlightening because like there's probably only a handful of mammals. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think if I remember, probably most of them are fish and reptiles yeah, and amphibians. Yeah. Uh, Actually, if I remember correctly, I'll have to look it up. I think the most are, most are invertebrates, but um, really, yeah, I can't remember. It's so interesting. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. It's just concerning yeah. to me that there's relatively so few. I mean, six thousand is a a large number of species, but relative to how many there are, it's not. I just think that all trade and all wildlife should be regulated. Yep. Somehow, and I think CITES is a powerful way to do it. Yeah, but it anyways. Yeah. So, yeah. So, speaking about numbers, Jonah, uh, why don't you give us some really important uh, numbers? Yeah. I always, like, I feel like every episode I have statistics, uh-huh. but I think I like to use numbers to, because we're generalizing when we're discussing these topics, and I like to use numbers to, like, pinpoint specific examples of these issues. Um, so, I kind of want to break it down into the two types of trade that we were talking about. So first I want to talk about the trade in animal products or like parts or dead animals or whatever. Um, so some, these are just some examples. Um, between 2009 and 2014, CITES reports that, um, that CITES reports ivory seizures at 159 metric tons which is equated to 15,900 elephants. <laughs> that's hard to believe. So that's it's like a number that's hard to believe. Yeah, Crazy. and that's only f- that's only what CITES reports, that's only what has been seized. Yeah. And it's known that in two, just in 2000 from 2011 to 2012 over 60,000 elephants were poached. So over that period from 2009 to 2014 the amount of ivory that was seized only equaled, you know, rounded up to 16,000 elephants. So where is all the other ivory from the 60,000 elephants that are killed, you know, in that one year period? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this just demonstrates how much ivory is being trafficked without being noticed and without consequence, which is so disturbing because these are just unbelievable numbers. Mm Anyways, um, moving on to reptiles, which is even crazier numbers. Um, between 2005 and 2013, 14 million wild-sourced protected reptile skins were traded internationally. Jeez. So that's like 14 million individual reptiles. Mm-hmm. How do we keep it, these? How do we expect these animals to keep up? I mean, I know it. It is just so illogical and just 
I just can't even comprehend it. The people that are doing this um, and expect like, you know, expecting that they're going to be able to continue. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we, we talked about this before. You yeah. know, the poacher that's directly killing the animal. They're just deciding whether they're thinking about whether they're going to be able to feed their family over the next week. They're not thinking like, is this species going to be here in five years yeah, or whatever? Yeah. So um, that's, I guess, probably why this kind of stuff is happening. Um, anyways, also just wanted to repeat a number that we mentioned in part two, that 340,000 Burmese python skins are exported from Southeast Asia annually. So that's just from one species every year. Yeah. Um, crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, switching to birds, an example is the helmeted hornbill, which is a critically endangered species, and it's we don't even know what its population size is. Um, in 2013 alone, 500 helmeted hornbills will, were killed each month in a small province of Indonesia, mm. um, but only 1,111 helmeted hornbills were confiscated between 2012 and 2014. Big difference. So if 500 a month in that one year, and then, you know, basically twice that was confiscated in a three-year period, uh, it just doesn't, like, it does not add up. It's mm-hmm. it's so concerning because there's so much that's going under the radar. Yeah. And these, I mean, hornbills, especially Asian hornbills, have been under serious threat lately and the helmeted hornbill is one of the the one that's worst off because it's sort of like a replacement of ivory because they have these huge um like casks on their on their bills which is why they're called hornbills and people think they're pretty and so they get they kill them and then they buy the skulls and they carve things into the the bills or the casks on the skulls and you know their artwork and the trade in that is is crazy. Um, anyways, when I was working in South Africa on a Southern ground hornbill project, I, the project was trying to get the Southern ground hornbill listed under CITES appendix two. And so my part of that was doing all the research on trying to find stuff about trade specifically in Southern ground hornbill online. And I had to go like into some deep web crap, Mm -hmm. um, weird like w- w- websites in Chinese where I was having to like have them translated and stuff and anyways um you could just find southern ground hornbills like whole skulls sold and like a like a dozen of them sold and you're just like where are people getting these like I just don't understand it anyways your mention of the deep web makes me think of the dark web I think we should do an episode on that someday um oh yeah that was yeah. That should have that should go in oh, this yeah. episode. Actually, yeah, because plenty of the, these products are going through the dark web, but Yeah. The yeah. It's scary stuff. Yeah. Um anyways. Um we have been remiss and not well no. We sh- we haven't mentioned really the pangolin at all. Yeah. I think we did in the first episode we called it the most trafficked animal in the world, mm-hmm. but then we just left it yeah. at that. Um, so let's talk about the pangolin right now. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, a lot of people may not even know what a pangolin is when we're talking about it. So you should look them up right now because they're really amazing animals. Yeah, they are. Um, 
And unfortunately, they are considered the most trafficked animal in the world. And this has just sort of exploded recently. And a lot of people probably now know what a pangolin is just in the past five years because this issue of pangolin trade has um, been in the news so much. Um, but they're basically like a... Sometimes they're also called scaly anteaters. They're not related to anteaters or armadillos, but they kind of are like, seem like a mix of them. Um, but of course, their parts are used in traditional Asian medicines. Um, their fetuses, their scales, and their blood are used for medicines. Um, their meat is considered a delicacy, pangolin soup. Um, and then even stuffed pangolins are sold as souvenirs. And I saw, I wish I never saw this, but I, when I was looking up this information, I saw some pictures of like stuffed pangolins and it was, it was so gross. First of all, talk about bad taxidermy. Yeah. <laughs> um, like those hilarious taxidermies that just are so bad. Yeah. But also it's just, just so sad um, yeah. to see these animals, like as a souvenir, like, oh, I got my little stuffed pangolin. Like what? Right. Right. Yeah. Like, just how deranged are you? <laughs> Anyways, I'm doing. I'm going to be doing a lot of judging in this episode because <laughs> people do, people need to be judged about this stuff. Like, this is a this is a topic where it's appropriate to be judgy. And if you don't agree with that, then that's fine. But I think that <laughs> you yeah. should be judging people for this stuff because it's mm-hmm. it. A lot of it comes back to morals, which I'll touch on a little in a little bit. Anyways, back to the pangolin. Um, more stats. Between 2010 and 2015, 120 tons of whole pangolin bodies were confiscated. And these are not big animals. Yeah, exactly. They, you know, they're on average five kilograms each. So that means in a five-year period, over 21,000 pangolins were confiscated. And again, that's just the ones that were seized. That's not the ones that didn't get uh, detected. Yeah. Um, one kilogram of, um, pangolin parts can be worth over $3,000, which is a lot. Um, and in November, 2017, right before there was a, a worldwide ban on the trade in pangolins, Chinese officials seized 11.9 tons of pangolin scales from one ship, which is the largest <sighs> pangolin seizure ever, eleven point nine tons of scales. That's, that's not even the that's not even the body parts. The scales weigh like the least amount of all the parts. Yeah, it's. I I think I remember when this happened. Um, it's just. Me too. Yeah. It's insane. <laughs> just on one boat. Um, yeah. So disturbing. And then the following month, ironically. Um. All eight species of pangolin were listed under Appendix 1 of CITES. Um, and this was like a long time coming, but I, I feel like it was probably like went a lot quicker because of this seizure the month before. Right. Yeah. Um, um, and according to the IUCN, which is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, pangolins comprise 20% of all illegal wildlife trade. So just the eight species of pangolin make up 20% of the entire trade, yeah. which is why they are considered the most trafficked animal in the world. 
Um, anyways, so this is, and this just doesn't relate to pangolins, this relates to a lot of animals, um, but it's interesting, what's interesting about trade in animal products is that when source animals become scarce, the demand shifts to sort of like surrogate species. So for pangolins, um, since pangolins are used, a lot of Asian cultures are using them for whatever purposes. Um, there's, there are species of pangolin in Asia and Africa. And because Asian pangolin species have been hit so hard and their populations have declined because of the trade, now the trade has shifted really heavily to Africa. And because there's not as many pangolins to be found in Asia. Um, and so now the species in Africa are declining because they're being poached there and being shipped to Asia. Um, you know, the same thing goes with tigers because there's so few tigers. Now species like jaguars and lions are being targeted. And these are species on completely different continents, but they're being targeted to replace the, you know, the demand for tiger bones or tiger fan or fangs um, for medicinal purposes. And so it's also just, that's just also like illogical when you're thinking about their medicinal purposes, it's like, so it's just like any cats can, their bones have medicinal purposes or properties. Right. <laughs> if it, or is it the tiger specifically, or are they selling it like saying this is tiger, tiger bone right. wine or whatever, yeah. when it's really like lions. And so they're just, you know, it's fraud. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. It's probably both. Yeah. It's probably a combination. Yeah. Um, but I was also just reading an article just yesterday about the trade in jaguar fangs. Um, and it really highlighted, this is really interesting. Um, it highlighted the impact that Chinese immigration to Bolivia in South America has had, what impact that has had on illegal wildlife trade in Bolivia. Um, because there's been like increased relations between China and Bolivia. It's led to a huge immigration from of people from China to Bolivia where they set up and work for companies that are basically aimed to help the economy in Bolivia. So a lot of the companies are specifically involved in road construction or sugar plantations. And the one biologist that was being interviewed was saying that, you know, this really brings them to the frontier of like the Jaguar territory, you know, on the borders of forests where they're building roads or where there are sugar plantations. And he said it just makes it more easy for these people that are working, these Chinese people that come to work for these Chinese companies, it makes them easier to poach and traffic parts from Jaguars because they just have easy access to them right, you know, next to where they're working. Um, and it makes them more likely to poach Jaguars and then again, ship it back to, China, where it's sold as tiger bone or whatever, tiger fangs. Um, and I think, I think personally think that the same thing goes with where in Zambia, where I was living because the, the Chinese government and is really involved in road construction and a lot of development projects in Zambia. And I have no doubt that this is impacting poaching in the wildlife trade in Zambia because all these people from China that go to work there, it just gives them access to the wildlife resources there. Um, 
and I'm not making this claim with like any evidence, but I just think based on my view of human nature, I wouldn't be surprised if <laughs> this is like a conspiracy theory, <laughs> but I wouldn't be surprised if these kind of initiatives by Chinese government and Chinese companies are sometimes like kind of used as a front or sort of like an opportunity to gain access to certain countries' wildlife resources. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's also just like an economic move by by China, but I think that this the demand is so high that really they could make so much money by not only, you know, helping these countries build roads and stuff, but also just by having access to wildlife there. So um, definitely conspiracy theory, but I think it, I believe it. makes makes sense. Um, so these are just sort of endless examples um, of, of the trade in wildlife products, specifically dead animal parts. And I mean, these can range, the, the trade in animal products ranges from everything like bird feathers to pretty grotesque things like gorilla heads as souvenirs or pang- stuffed pangolins or jaguar paws as souvenirs. Yeah. Um, and again, I think this is where it's uh, super appropriate to be judgy because that, that, I think that just comes down to your morals, like, and I won't go too far into it, but who in their right mind thinks that that's, that that's okay and that, that that's acceptable to, to kill these animals so that you can like have it as a, a jaguar paw as like a perver- perverse decoration in your house or a gorilla head. Um, pretty messed up stuff to put it lightly that's all i'll say (laughs) thoughts (laughs) lots of thoughts you know that (laughs) we should do we should do like a a debate one day about this kind of thing um i agree that (laughs) judging um is important but you know me i'm also all about like well (laughs) it's the culture and oh they were raised with this cultural narrative and well yeah um, but what culture what like a gorilla hat as a decoration. And a lot of times that isn't even cultures. That's like, that's, they're selling these things to tourists sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Specifically with gorillas and, and chimpanzees and stuff. When you read about the trade in their parts, it's, it's souvenirs that these tourists are buying. Cause they think it's cool mm-hmm. to have a gorilla head or a gorilla hand. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Absolutely. So I'm not judging like people's belief in, right. in, these things like medicinal medicine or whatever, even though it it is unfounded, but I'm judging like that it's you, it's you think that someone thinks it's cool or acceptable to have like a gorilla head as an example for it, a souvenir, that kind of grotesque stuff. Yeah, no, I, it, it's just perverse. I, I think. Yeah. There's definitely a distinction there. Um, that's good to make because I, I, I don't, because there, there are groups of people who, like you said, this has nothing to do with culture. They just want, and they're just, it's just greed. And the people who provide them just want to feed that greed. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a huge portion. Of yeah. That's what, that's what I'm judging. That's yeah, what I want. Yeah, yeah. I'm not judging people that believe in traditional medicine or whatever. Right. I'm ju- judging that kind of, yeah, greed, basically that grotesque mm-hmm. greed. Yeah, definitely. Anyways. Um, okay. So now, so that was 
trade in dead animal parts. Now we have the trade in live animals, which is even crazier, and we could go on more about it. Um, but just want to give some statistics about that because these statistics are equally disturbing. Um, so actually a paper just came out that I read in the journal Oryx um, that said that every year 300,000 live common tortoises are exported from Morocco to Britain for the pet trade. So that's just the trade between two countries, 300,000 individual live tortoises. Yeah. And what makes it worse, it was saying, is that they target smaller tortoises so that people can have them in a tiny little terrarium. Um, and by taking all the little ones, they're affecting like the, the reproduction of the population and, you know, the, the future of that population as a whole. Um, crazy. Yeah. Um, okay. Parrots. That's a big one. Yeah. We could do a whole episode on just the parrot trade. Um, and this is definitely something that has like a basis in history. Well, I mean, all of this has a basis in history, but there's some people have been, people are entranced by parrots because they are amazing and beautiful animals. Mm -hmm. Um, and because they're so beautiful and people just want to hoard them, they have been one of like a poster, a poster group for um, the live animal trade yeah. and the effects it could have on wild populations. So just generalizing uh, parrots as a, as a group of species between 19, the 1980s and 2013, roughly 12 million live parrots were legally traded of which 62% were wild caught or of unknown source. So, here I think is a, and this is all from CITES. Um, so we should point out if we didn't already make it clear that CITES data is all based on the legal trade. Yeah. Because yep. CITES is regulating trade and it's requiring the parties to record the legal trade. And it records when they seize illegal traded, illegally traded animals and products. Um, but this is 12 million live parents legally traded in that time period. And when parties are reporting the legal trade of, of animals or plants, they there's certain information that they collect. So like what the source of it was, um, where it's going, what purpose it's for. And because there's inconsistencies in the way this data is collected, um, also, you know, sometimes these because of corruption, it could be reported incorrectly. Um, a lot of times you see this unknown source. Um, and a lot of and when you look at studies that analyze trade, they normally lump this together with wild caught animals because that's probably what it is. Um, if If the animals are coming from a captive source, the people likely know that this is a captive red animal that we're trading because I got it from this person or whatever. Um, and when you look at it's really interesting when you look at the um, CITES data for certain species, I've been really looking at it for the saddleable stork because um, I have some intel that says that they are very a lot more trafficked than is recognized because they're big, beautiful birds and people like to have these exotic bird collections. 
the numbers don't match up from what's being exported from a certain country to what's being imported in a certain country. So either if it says 100 birds were exported and only like 50 were imported, does that mean that 50 died during transport or that the importing country doesn't want to admit that they're importing that many birds? Right, right. If that makes sense. Yeah. So anyways, these discrepancies are just red flags to me. And sometimes if this has to do with the way that the period, time period falls when they report it, like if it was at the end of the year and then they, it was imported at the beginning of January or something. But um, anyways, that's just something to note. So yeah, I want to. Sorry. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I wanted to add you. It, that reminded me. You saying whether they died in transport. Um, that a lot of these live animals do die in transport. Um, and in fact, a, a, a huge amount of live animals do die in transport. But as we already know, a dead animal is not um, without value. Worthless. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, exactly. sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. And yeah, and. Not that them dying in transport doesn't always it can be for a lot of reasons. A lot of times these animals, the conditions that they're living in are horrible, plus just stress. Um, I mean, some I can think of several examples in the past couple of years where tortoises, baby tortoises have been confiscated and they've been just like like a hundred baby tortoises put in a suitcase yeah. and just yeah. zipped up. They're just all piled live animals just piled on top of each other in a suitcase. Um, so no wonder they die when they're in conditions like that. Absolutely. Anyways. Um, okay, so 12 million, just again, 12 million live parrots legally traded between the 1980s and 2013. Um, in 1994, the U.S. banned import of live parrots. Um, it took until 2005 for the EU to ban the import of live parrots. So... Kind of a lag, long lag time there. Yeah. Um, but there's a couple places, a couple countries in particular, South Africa and Uruguay, that make up most of the the global exports of live parents, uh, live parrots. So between 2007 and 2013, South Africa and Uruguay made up actually ha- over half of global exports in live parrots, and South Africa in particular. You know, there's a couple species of parrots in South Africa, but that's not what's, I mean, they probably are being exported, but South Africa is where a lot of, it's sort of like a hub for export of all these parrots from Central Africa. Uh, And I'm sure we all know what an African gray parrot is. Uh, They live in Central and Western Africa. And this has sort of been, this is one of the most popular captive parrots and one of the most widely traded live parrots Um, and so those those parrots from central africa are being shipped to south africa and then they're being exported further abroad to be distributed in different countries so that's that's what we're talking about when we're talking about south africa and uruguay accounting for so many exports that's because they're hubs um for trade in these species um in 2013 alone, okay, no, of 325,000 CITES-listed parrots legally exported around the world in 2013, one-third were reported reportedly wild-caught, um, which is a lot, you know, over 100,000 live parrots being 
legally traded in one year. Yeah. Uh, just baffling and obviously so unsustainable. Um, so like I said, African gray parrots are one of the most commonly traded species. So are monk parakeets. Um, between 2007 and 2014, about 39,000 African gray parrots were legally exported from Central and Western African countries, of which nearly 35,000 came from the Democratic Republic of Congo alone. Mm. 35,000 live parrots from a single country in a seven-year period. Yeah. I'm surprised that there's even that many left. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> because gray parrots have been traded for so long and so intensively. I I can't believe that there's that many yeah. It, as late as 2014. It really speaks to the resilience of of wildlife. But, of course, we can't count on their resilience to keep them from becoming extinct yeah. with these kind of pressures. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's a good point. Um, okay, more numbers. But, again, I think just highlighting how crazy this is. Um, in 2009, over 1,000 African gray parrots were seized in Cameroon en route to the Middle East. Mm. Um, so just another crazy number yeah. just from one country. Um, and then scarlet macaws are another super popular, well, macaws in general are super popular species. Yeah. Um, in 2011, nearly 90... Oh, this is, this is actually from a... I've just been reading about scarlet macaws because I'm going to Belize next year and I really want to see them, but there's not that many left because... Uh, poaching has really caused their populations to decline. So I was reading in this report um, that in 2011, nearly 90% of scarlet macaw nests that were being monitored in Belize were poached. Jesus. Um, but then when they, you know, they got that information, they quantified that poaching, and then they intensified monitoring and protection efforts, and then in the following years, poaching dropped to 30%, which is a significant improvement, but that's still a lot when there's so few of the species in the country. And at the same time, um, recently, like I think 10 years ago, one of their most important breeding habitats was flooded when they put up a dam on this river. Um, so they're just that doesn't help them either yeah. in that country. Um, and then finally, a last example of the trade in, in wild animals, live wild animals, uh, is neotropical primates. So primates from Central and South America. And this is this number is from this study um, published in 2016 by Fialho et al. Um, and they were looking at CITES data. And they found that between 1977 and 2013, 89,358 live primates were legally exported from South American countries. And 60,000 of these were just squirrel monkey species. Mm -hmm. um, and this is to fuel this, yeah, this pet, exotic pet oh, fixation. Because yeah. people love monkeys. They love monkeys. That's a lot of monkeys. Yeah, it is. Um, and yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it's a huge, astonishing number, but... I'm not surprised by that number. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I agree. And again, this is, all these numbers are just what is legally traded. So imagine what is illegally traded. Yep. Uh, and I think it's, 
going back to that there's only 6,000 species listed on CITES, that combined with the fact that it's legal for this many live primates to be traded or all these species we're talking about, uh, there just shouldn't be this this legal amount of legal trade. It's it's oh, absolutely. It's not science based like it should be. Like you said, that these regulations are supposed to be based in science, yep. and I think all effective conservation is based in science. And this is absolutely unsustainable. And you don't even need. <laughs> I'm not going to say you don't need science, but just looking at these numbers, you can these numbers you can just tell that they're unsustainable without even yep. knowing more about these species. Yeah, and, and one day we should do, God, we keep coming up with episode ideas, but one day we, <laughs> sh- we need to do an episode on how the legal market um, contributes to the illegal market. And, you know, that whole debate about, well, if you sell them legally, but like, no, <laughs> like, we have to have zero legal market in wildlife. It's, it's just... Because the moment people think, oh, it's okay to trade in these things, that just perpetuates the narrative. And anyway, yeah. that we could go off all on and on about that. Yeah. And it, um, it also makes things more complex for enforcement. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that shortly because, you know, okay, there's this number, this many of this species can be legally traded, but after this quota, they can't be unless it's like, Okay, so the person that was last in line, they are just out of luck. Yeah. And so they're just like, oh, they're just going to give up on, they're just going to walk away and be like, okay, I'm going to go bring this animal back to where I right. got it. I'm like, yeah. No. <laughs> um, anyways, we'll talk about that shortly. Um, so just finishing up on primates, uh, I unfortunately stumbled upon an exotic animal uh website a website that sells exotic animals and there's all sorts of crazy stuff you can find on there um but there was a lot of monkeys especially baby monkeys because they're cute and that's what people want as pets um and it was crazy because they they would just say like a monkey for sale and it wouldn't even have the species and you can't i can't tell what species it is because it's like a you know baby monkey that's still pink and has hardly any hair it's just like the one was labeled Baby Java and it was listed for $5,000 in Texas. And it's crazy how many of these these um, wildlife that species that were for sale on there were from Texas. It's pretty disturbing. And I'll mention a little bit more about that in a minute. But um, Baby Java for $5,000, you don't even know what species you're getting. Um, just, yeah. Um, a, a breeding pair of Jeffrey's Marmosets for sale for $7,900 in Florida. Um, a, a baby capuchin, which has been made popular by Hollywood, which I'll talk about in a minute, for sale for $9,500 in Missouri. I mean, this is basically like a Craigslist for wildlife if you go on the website. It's so disturbing. And they're wrapped in like a little blanket and they have like a little bottle. And oh God, yeah. So disturbing. Yeah. Um, and I mean... Th- the number of examples that we could list about this this issue of live trade is basically limited to the number of species that exist in the world. Yeah. Um, because it, it's just that 
prolific and widespread. Um, I don't think we really need to go into much detail about the negative effects that live trade has on wildlife populations. I think it's pretty straightforward and obvious because you're just taking this a huge amount of individuals out of a population and it's obviously going to have a negative effect on wild in the wild. But I think it's critical to understand that in many cases, this trade can also have negative impacts on the ecosystems where these animals are being brought. So if you think of Florida is a perfect example where all these exotic animals, especially reptiles and amphibians have been brought for the pet trade because like Miami international airport is a huge, um, uh, what's it called? Um, hub. Hub. Yeah, yeah I guess. Um, where for import of live animals into the United States. I mean, a lot of the news that you read about live animals being confiscated, it's at Miami international, yeah. but anyways, all these exotic reptiles and amphibians being brought there and either they escape or, you know, an animal gets too big or someone doesn't want it anymore and they just release it and then it gets out in the wild. And I'm sure a lot of people know that pythons are just extremely invasive in Florida now. And that's because of this issue and it's detrimental to native species. Um, and this like the python control can't even keep up with the rate that the python population is growing there. And this is a result of live trade. So not only is it affecting, you know, all these pythons being taken from the wild when they are, but it's affecting native Florida wildlife. Um, and here, here in Texas, if you don't know, we will, we are definitely, we, this is a promise. We are going to be doing an episode on trophy hunting sometime. Yes, yes absolutely. <laughs> when we'll make lots of friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know, trophy hunting is a big thing here in Texas. And not, I'm not talking about white-tailed deer. That is a big thing. But exotic wildlife, exotic antelope and stuff, it's a big industry here in Texas. Mm-hmm. And it's completely uncontrolled and unregulated so much so that they don't even know how many of these species exist in Texas. But, um, I mean, there has to be, and of course no one's going to study this and we just don't know, but there has to be an impact, a negative impact of all these non-native ungulates in high densities, basically trying to replicate the African savannas, that amount of grazing and browsing on this landscape in Texas where it naturally isn't supposed to be like that, it has to have a native, uh, an impact on the native ecosystem, whether it's on the white-tailed deer, probably not because they're probably trying to, you know, make sure that it's not affecting the deer, but just on birds or insects or the plant life here. Um, so that's just an example of exotic wildlife impacting the natural environments. Yeah. And yeah, anyways. We're just like prostituting our natural environments mm-hmm. for our fixation in this stuff. Um, anyways, um, but I mean, when we're talking about live trade, it, all these animals that are being traded, they're not necessarily destined to be 
pets or on trophy ranches. Um, there's even some zoos that still import wild caught animals, yep. and it's it's definitely not as big of a thing as it was, you know, back in the 60s. Have you ever seen the movie Hatari with John Wayne? No. Oh, God, I hate John Wayne. Oh, my gosh. Really? You got to watch this movie. It's, he's like a, I don't really like John Wayne movies. I, I just like this. Well, I just was interested in this one because basically the whole premise is he leads a team in Africa where they catch animals to send to American zoos Uh, and it's like in the uh sixties and they're like, Oh yeah, we're getting these zebras for the San Diego zoo. And like it has, it has real (gasps) live footage of the people that were actually doing this in the sixties of them, like chasing down zebras and like noosing them and catching them to send them off to, to American zoos. So anyways, that's, that's how it used to go. And that's how we have our captive zoo stock. That's how we ended up with what we have now. But um, I don't think that's not being done nowadays, but some zoos still do import wild caught animals. And, you know, like I was saying, I've been looking at the CITES data for the saddle bill. And I think it was like 10 years ago or less than 10 years ago, there was a shipment of a handful of saddle bills into Portugal that was under the purpose of zoo. And whether that's like, accurate or not or whether it was just recorded that way but i think that just further demonstrates the issues with cites reporting but this kind of thing is still happening with zoos and um i mean i'm sure like the san diego zoo and like big zoos aren't doing that but sure it's a little like sketchy zoos but it's not necessarily only private people that are getting these live traded animals yeah um Anyways, I'm not even going to talk more about the, the Texas trophy right now because I'll just I'm going to go on a tangent. Yeah. But there's there's more there's certain species that exist in larger numbers on Texas trophy ranches or in Texas captive wildlife collections than they're due of that species in the wild. Um, and that's all I'll say about that for now. Um, okay, so how did we get here? Um, you know, like I already said, this has to do with, with history basically, but, and I bet when I was listing all these examples from ancient wildlife trade or ownership, a lot of people were probably like, oh, that's horrible. Like and cringing at like the politicians wanting leopards and and stuff. Um, and it is, it's crazy, but in reality, we haven't changed. We're still in the same phase or fixation with keeping wild animals for pleasure or whatever. Um, And it wasn't already, it wasn't as if the trade wasn't already booming. um, The rise of the internet and social media has made it even worse and increased the demand um, and the availability and the interest in exoting, in owning wild exotic animals. So, I mean, the internet, you think about it, that's this Craigslist for wildlife that I was just talking about. It's basically the internet has made selling and buying easier for any random Joe Schmo because you can just go on there and find what you want to buy or sell some animal that you have where it didn't used to be so easy like that. Yeah. Um, 
and even Facebook, all these social media platforms often serve the same pur- purpose. There was actually a study by Traffic, which is an NGO that focuses on wildlife trade issues. Um, in 2016, they published a study that found um, 1,521 listings of live animals for sale on Facebook in Thailand. And their sampling method was by only searching 12 Facebook groups in Thailand for 30 minutes a day for oh my God. 23 days. Yeah. So that tiny little snippet, they found over 1,500 listings of live animals on Facebook. Oh, Thailand. Yeah. <laughs> and this listing that they found of the 1,500, or this um, sample that they found of 1,500, over 1,500 listings, they found that there was at least 200 species be- for sale, most of which were mammals, particularly the slow loris. Um, but they also included endangered species like the Siamese crocodile or the helmeted hornbill, which we already talked about. So Facebook is is just Facebook and the internet has just made this issue worse. But they also Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they also just create platforms for people to kind of showcase these their pets as status symbols. And it's that's really what it comes down to. You know, these these royalty they had, oh, cheetahs as status symbols and stuff. But now people have these pets so that they can post it on their social media platforms, which is basically, it's just for attention as a status symbol when it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's it should definitely be noted that as big of an issue that these, as these social media platforms are for the wildlife trade, they don't address this issue. Um, I mean, like, we really need to put the pressure on Facebook and Instagram to help combat. I mean, the amount of money they have and the influence they have, they could really make a difference. Um, yeah. And just despite the role that they play, they don't acknowledge their role at all. So yeah. it's disturbing. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, I'm almost done rambling. Um <laughs> I also just read a study that just came out last week in the journal Oryx that highlighted the issue of Instagram for fueling um, live animal trade. And basically, the authors, they searched Instagram for selfies of people with exotic animals in a specific city in Turkey. So again, this is just a small sample that they were looking at. Um, Probably impossible to do this on like a global scale. And they found that the majority of these wildlife selfies on Instagram were with slow lorises, which if you don't know what a slow loris is, it's a very strange type of primate. Um, and you should just look them up. They're very, very interesting, really cool animals. Um, majority of the, the selfies on Instagram were slow lorises in this particular town in Turkey. Uh-huh. Um, they also, there also were sugar gliders, macaws, turtles, and monkeys. Um, and they really highlighted how like how Instagram or, or Facebook or whatever can be the source of demand for certain species. And they use the example of the slow loris being popularized by Rihanna when she posted a Instagram photo in Thailand in 2013 with her holding a slow loris um, as if she hasn't negatively contributed to our society yet with her lack of talent in general. 
<laughs> too judgy. Too judgy. <laughs> she actually does a lot. But she of had like, to go and make it worse with her. She actually does a lot of like um, what's the word? On? Charity work. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. Well, she should. She should apologize for popularizing the trade in Star Wars. I know, right? They really like. It was interesting how they highlighted it. Yeah. Anyways, that's all mm-hmm. I'll say. And it, this is just one example. There's, I think, I think I vaguely remember something with Paris Hilton having a slow Loris too. Um, not that uh, she has yeah, as much I think influence. I remember. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, yeah. anyways, I think that these people that are in the limelight should realize the amount of influence they can Absolutely, have on things like this. Yeah. But anyways, in this study that they did um, on Instagram, a lot of the photos or videos were taken during the day, you know, holding the lorises and uh, just a background. Slow loris are actually nocturnal and they have really sensitive eyes. So they sleep during the day and they're not out in the daylight because their eyes are really sensitive. And, you know, these people don't care about that. So they're just toting around the slow loris in the daylight, taking flash photography, um, dressing them up in clothes sometimes. Um, and on Instagram, they were often hashtagged as lemurs, monkeys, or bush babies. Right, right. Um, some, sometimes as slow loris. So again, like these people don't even know what animals they're dealing with. Um, and the authors actually even went and visited the city after they did this, you know, search on Instagram. They went and visited the city to find vendors or bars that that keep these slow loris and they call them as wildlife photo props which is disturbing and it seems kind of crazy to us in the united states but um like this is a much bigger issue than we realize and even here in the united states people have that with like scarlet macaws yeah i can think of i remember at the fair when i was young my mom has the photo hanging up my brother and i got our photos holding scarlet macaws Mm um they're Wildlife photo props, basically. Yeah, that's a really interesting terminology and I think highlights it. How dare you, Jonah? Um, <laughs> let's not talk about my shameful history in the wildlife <laughs> trade. Um, anyway, so for around like three US dollars, tourists can go and get photos with the slow loris, hold them or play with them. Um, and then when the loris aren't being exploited for photos, they're just kept in a cage behind the DJ booth. <laughs> And this is like people, these people went and actually were observing this. Yeah. Kept behind the DJ booth where they're, of course, being stressed by like flashing lights and loud music. Mm-hmm. Um, but also they're fed a poor diet of like cherries, grapes, which they don't naturally eat. Or even orange wedges that were removed from cocktails. Oh, God. Like this is, this is seriously <sighs> disturbing. Um, and then sometimes they weren't even fed until tourists paid to hold them and have them taken out of the cages. So then the tourists could feed them this crap. Yeah. Um, and also, um, slow loris, really interesting. They have um, a venomous bite through these certain teeth. And so all these live traded loris around the world, um, they get their teeth, their venom teeth removed so that they can't bite people and God. inject them with the venom. Um which is also just horrible because then they can be safely handled and have photos taken with. Um, so there was a couple species that they found when they were looking at the Instagram thing and when they were in Turkey. Um, and both species are considered vulnerable and both species are listed as Appendix 1 on CITES. So 
also, when you look at the CITES database, no primates have ever been legally imported to Turkey. So obviously these were illegally trafficked, slow loris. Um, yeah, so this is just an example of how Instagram fuels or social media in general fuels this trade because we think it's really cool to post a selfie with these wild animals. I prefer you take a picture of like the animal in the wild and post it on Instagram. Why can't you just do that? Um, And that was something that I think it was in this article that they highlighted like in places like Thailand, you know, these people that are doing this to make a quick buck on with their wildlife photo props, like they can actually take people out and go see real wild animals and people could take photos of them. Yeah. Um, Anyways, then we have Hollywood films, um, which are also obviously greatly influential. Yeah. And they really, with certain movies, have popularized popularized certain pets. Um, so, for example, like Finding Nemo has popularized the trading clownfish. Harry Potter has really popularized the trade in owls. Um, you know, I'm sure most people didn't even know what a snowy owl was like until they saw Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, Oh, and I was even watching this show last night, this stupid show, and um, a fictional show, and one episode, like, she was trying to, she made a promise to this old woman that she cared for that she would take the woman's pet lemur to her daughter when she died or whatever. Mm -hmm. Super random, but it's a really bizarre show. (laughs) Anyways, they had a real live ring-tailed lemur in the show that they're carrying around. And there was this one like gun scene battle because these people stole the lemur and anyways. um, And I'm sure a lot of the the sounds and stuff were like put in afterwards, but like people are screaming and like, "Ah," and like um, Emma Stone, the actress is holding the the cage with the ring-tailed lemur there. And the lemur's like, freaking out in the cage and i'm like watching this like why how is this going on in modern day hollywood like it's it's crazy um anyways i just thought of that when we're talking about hollywood um also youtube is something that you might not think would really help proliferate the this issue but it does big time um I like otters a lot, um, river otters. And so sometimes I just like to watch videos of otters. But when, like, wild otters, you search, if you search otter on YouTube, most of the videos come up are, like, someone's pet otter and they're, like, in a little swimming pool or they're being bottle fed. It's so hard to find a video of a wild otter, obviously, because they're just elusive. But that's all there for people to watch and be like, oh, that's so cute. I want to get an otter. And then go on this wildlife Craigslist and buy a baby otter. The same with prairie dogs. I was... I look up oh, for yeah. prairie dog videos, and it's always like, "Oh, this is look at my fat prairie dog." Like, uh. yeah, and those are only two examples. Right. Yeah, uh, gosh, YouTube. Yeah. Um, so and, and you know, seeing threatened species. So, I mean, some of these, some of these otters that are on YouTube are like are endangered Asian species of otters, and people have them as little pets in their bathtub. And when people see threatened species in this type of human context, it leads them to perceive the wildlife as less threatened and to think that they're suitable as pets. And none of that is true. Um, And I think it's particularly 
an important point is that it leads people to make it leads people to think that oh these animals aren't threatened because people can have them as pets like they're not endangered when really they're doing really poorly in the wild um and you know while social media has brought a lot of species into the limelight that people didn't really know about when we're talking about their conservation um you know that's a positive thing but I think it's all this, it's really, in summary, increase the demand for the live trade in a lot of wild animals. Um, and, you know, it can be argued that reducing the demand for live animals is probably even more challenging than reducing the demand for animal products because this is just, I guess, sort of my opinion. Um, because we want what we want, like, people are impulsive. Um, materialistic and everything and you know someone sees a cute baby otter and like we want to get that and it's it's more of a, a it's much more I think it's more rooted in selfishness the live pet trade than the animal like medicinal product trade is yeah, that's like uh-huh. you know ingrained in cultures and superstitions and religion and stuff but the the pet trade just it basically just comes down to selfishness really Any comments? <laughs> yeah. No, well, yes. No, I, I agree. Um, and yeah, um, well, yes. And a lack of understanding. So educating people about why keeping live animal, wild animals is wrong is obviously really key, as is all these, when we're talking about all wildlife issues, education is really important. But I don't think, I personally don't think that this can can solve the problem entirely because, I, like I just said, I think it's rooted in selfishness and just human nature. Um, we covet things that we don't have, especially if it has some wow factor or cool or um, something that sets us apart, which basically comes back to it being a social status. So really, I, education is, is really important, but I think it really comes down, I, I personally believe that it comes down to morals and logic and just our human nature, which is also why I think that this issue is so rooted in history. And I think that that, the fact that it's so rooted in history has to do, I think that supports that this has to do with, this issue is related to our nature as humans. Mm -hmm. Anyways. Yeah. Um, So, yes. So going on that, um, I believe that, uh, I also believe education, quote unquote, education is important. Um, I don't particularly like the word education, um, but it's it's really the best word to use or the best word to use to get people to understand what we're saying. So um, for me, what I believe should be the fundamental approach when it comes to education um, should be less what they know and more who they are. Not that it shouldn't be what they know, not that what they know is unimportant, but I believe that who they are is um is much, much more important um, than what they know. Uh, so all the statistics that Jonah threw at you, um, just forget them. And uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, not really though, but for the sake of my argument, let's just forget those statistics. They are important. But for the sake of my argument, um, just because it is hard to reach people like this by giving them facts and numbers, um, they it doesn't touch their hearts and exotic pet owners are all about emotion. Um, and so 
the who they are philosophy, uh, my who they are philosophy applies to all wildlife trade, actually. Um, and we've, we've spoken a little bit about this, about sec- socio, social, eco- socioeconomic um, in, inequalities and where these people live and the communities they live in. Um, but the, the best category to demonstrate this who they are approach is with the exotic pet trade, which we've already which we've been talking about today. So today uh, to illustrate what I mean, uh, we'll, I'll take a quick look at the arguments that exotic pet owners use to defend themselves. And exotic pet owners come in a few categories, the saviors, the naturalists, the lovers, and the collectors, basically. So I'll start with the saviors. Um, so something a savior might say is, quote unquote, I am keeping the species alive away from problems like habitat loss and persecution. So they believe um, that they are the heroes, the protectors, the saviors. They are the species champions because they're keeping these species alive. Um, So that's who they are. What they know is any possible level of quote unquote facts from zero to countless, right? Because they can throw any facts at you or receive any facts from you. Um, But it's for for my approach is how to reach them is to, is to touch them where, how to reach, touch them. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Um, Here's how I think you, you, you can reach the saviors. Um, For example, is make them see themselves in the faces of real saviors. Um, So people who may speak like them, especially, um, speaking in um, the language of emotions and in the language of, of, of champions, um, people who can relate to them emotionally, but people, these people are doing actual conservation work. And you can find um, a lot of conservationists who, who have similar language um, to these so, so-called saviors. And um, I think if you take these people out... Um, with these conservationists and see how they're, they're the actual champions, um, that may be one way to reach them. And these are just examples. Of course, this is all um, just like scratching the surface of, of potent possible solutions and how to reach these people. Um, so the next category are the naturalists. And these are people who might say, quote unquote, keeping a wild animal as a pet in my home connects me to the natural world. Um, what they know. Any possible level of quote-unquote facts from zero to countless. Who they are, uh, the naturalists are romantics and they are daydreamers. So how do we reach them? Well, how about wildlife watching, ecotourism, actually getting them out into the natural world so they can see how these animals are supposed to be living. Do they own a slow loris? We've been talking about slow lorises. Fund a trip to Thailand. Show them the animals in the natural environments. Make sure you are... um, chaperoning them though because we all know <laughs> <laughs> they might grab right, it and right. run. <laughs> um and, and in fact while you're in thailand go ahead and show them the animals in their cages um show them what the animals are going through show them their stress show them their injuries um if these people really want to slow loris in their house if they're being romantic about it they're daydreaming about it this is you know a potential solution um, and I could even see creating a program for something like this, um, like an NGO or something where you take donations to, to get people out there. Um, but that's one example of how you might reach somebody who would consider themselves a natu- naturalist when it comes to exotic pet owning. 
So the other category are the lovers. And these people are, are um, a little bit harder to reach. And I've been kind of going the categories I've been going to like from the easiest to the hardest to reach. But um, the lovers might say, quote unquote, I've been failed by people in my life. These animals have never failed me. Um, and I'm actually taking these quotes from, from um, not verbatim, but basically what I've heard um, as arguments from, from actual exotic pet owners. Um, so what they know, same thing, doesn't matter what they know. Well, it does, but not as much. Um, who they are. These are social casualties. These are people who are hurt. They're broken. These are junkies. Um, this is what I would call the, the big junkie category. Um, they're using exotic pets as a drug. Um, so how do you reach them? Well, you show them love in action. Uh, programs like Born Free USA, um, the World Wildlife Foundation's traffic program, um, take them to these places um, take them to these, uh, organizations or many, uh, that are actually protecting animals from the exotic pet trade. And they're doing this from a position of love. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about how even as conservationists, we can be emotional. Um, you know, we, we love these animals. So, you know, show them what true, what the true love of an exotic animal is and challenge their true level of love. You know, bring them to domestic animal shelters, even go as far as human programs to fulfill their lives and restore their faith in humanity. This is what, this is one of the most important things about my approach, the who they are approach. Um, you know, you, you, you approach a, a social casualty like this, a junkie like this, and the numbers aren't going to matter because they're using th these exotic pets um, to fulfill their lives. You can fulfill your life with a domestic animal, with a dog, with a cat, <laughs> with a, a hamster <laughs> or something like something, a domestic a animal. Pig. That, yeah, a guinea pig. Exactly. I have to, uh, <laughs> not that I don't have love in my life. Um, so, <laughs> but, oh um, my gosh. yeah, so that's, that's the other category, the lovers. And this is, I know this is all just very sort of philosophical and I'm throwing these solutions at you without like actual, like feasible things. But, um, actually that reminds me going, going along with what I'm saying as our listeners if you can think of things like programs or or feasible things um, to pick up on what I'm saying here, um, share them with us or, or share them with anybody um, because that would be really important too. So the final category are the collectors. Um, these are the quote unquote, gotta catch them alls. These are the hardest ones to reach um, because who they are is they're the gatherers but mostly they're the powerful, the proud, they're the prize winners. These are super prideful people. Um, they put their collections above the animals. These, I mean, yes, maybe they love their animals, but these are people who don't need to love the animals to have them. Um, and yeah, they're the hardest to reach. They they just want to fill up their collection. And yeah, that's like what I was talking about. The, yeah. It's rooted in selfishness, just coveting because it's yep. cool and they want it. They don't have it. They want Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And a lot of exotic pet owners um, feel powerful 
having these pets either as status symbols or if it's like a, a quote unquote dangerous animal or a potentially dangerous animal, I should say, like a tiger or um, a venomous snake. Uh, these owners feel powerful having these animals in their homes. And that's that's a really addictive feeling. That's that's a feeling that is really difficult to reach. That's the kind of person that's difficult to reach. And this is the this is the category where I would well I will admit I'm stuck. I'm stuck on this category. I can't think of a really good um, empathetic uh, approach for these people, and this will be the one place where I'll concede to outright law enforcement um, for people like this. Uh, so whatever your approach, I think everybody can agree that every category of demand of trade demand, whether it's in live or dead or partial animals, not just the exotic pet trade, but every category of demand has its own matrix of varying motivations, excuses, and narratives. And we need to break apart every one of these categories for closer inspection, um, just like I've done right now. And I'm not saying that nobody's doing this. They, we are, there's, there, there are global attempts to do such things, um, but we need to break apart every category in, in order to effectively address the scope of the problem. So yes, education is a big element when it comes to solutions. Um, for this particular argument, I was like, I was being pithy about facts, but that's you, the facts are important. Um, but I still believe that what they know is a little less important than who they are. So um, this is why this is why I keep saying you need to write a book on this. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just and it goes back to in our first episode when we were like, you know, saying how we're different and like, you're emotionally um like you approach things from an emotional perspective i approach them from a lot logical perspective yeah like, yeah this is i think this episode really demonstrates i think so yeah <laughs> but i think yeah. it's a good balance because um yeah my yeah, kind yeah. of approach can get um daydreamy i'll admit like my kind of approach can get really philosophical and um you have to have both approaches you have to be practical as well you can't just um talk talk and talk and be like oh people are you know, you can connect with everybody. There's a way to connect with everybody when there isn't. Yeah. Uh, there isn't always a way to connect with everybody. So um, I think your your way of thinking is also important. And I think that like that's why that's why conservation has to be done um, in teams. Like people have to work together, and it has to be interdisciplinary. It has to be interphilosophical. Um, that kind of thing. So anyway, yes. Yeah. So. While we're on solutions, um, you know, I've been talking about all of these um, empathy solutions. You can call them. I can't think of a better word for that, but there is one. Um, but while we're on solutions, let's talk legislation. Let's talk like actual um, practical um, legal um, solutions. So I'm going to talk about U.S. legislation since that's the country I live in. Um, and that, that's the one I know most about. Um, also, because the United States is a world leader and it's really important that we that we um, put up a, a good example. But anyway, um, so the United States is a CITES party, as we've already mentioned. Um, but the way our laws are partitioned by state sometimes makes it difficult for federal enforcement to reconcile with state enforcement. You know, because of our somewhat unique um, state system where we have like so many freaking states with so many different laws and um, that's that sort of thing. It's it's sometimes hard for the federal government to 
to uh, keep up with the with state enforcement. But anyway, um, there are too many state legislations to go over thoroughly. But for a quick summary, um, 19 of our 50 states have an outright ban on the private ownership of certain exotic species. So, so each state has a, a different list. Um, and this includes native and non-native um, species of wildlife. 12 states have partial bans, which protect fewer species. 14 states allow private ownership, but only with a license or permit from the state agency. Five states are falling way behind. They have either no regulations or super lax regulations. And those states are um, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, Nevada, and Wisconsin. It's important to call them out because they're doing a terrible job. Ohio was one of these states in that last category um, before the Zanesville massacre of 2011, um, which I do want to do an entire episode on on the Zanesville massacre yes. at some point. Um, it, in, but just in case anybody doesn't know about the Zanesville massacre, it was um, a menagerie of wild animals that got loose after their owner committed suicide. And because law enforcement had no way to deal with it, um, all those animals got killed. And it was like... It was a lot. It was dozens of of wild animals um, that were killed. Anyway, that's the Zanesville Massacre. Um, really important <clears throat> event in the history of the United States, to be honest. But um, a lot of people haven't heard of it. So, um, what? Uh, so those are some state legislations, real quick. Now let's talk about uh, the Lacey Act, which is. Um, a huge piece of federal legislation um, that involves this issue. So it's a 118-year-old um, act, and it makes uh, importing, exporting, selling, acquiring, or purchasing wild animals and plants, um, whether dead, alive, whole, in parts, or as products, that are taken, possessed, transported, or sold both across state lines and internationally illegal. So it's Ill- illegal to do all that long sentence that I just said. Um, and <laughs> and uh, I also wanted to note, in case I forget, that tribal law is also included in this. So um, tribal sovereign nations are um, also abide by the Lacey Act. Um, so basically under the Lacey Act, animals or plants that are imported or exported to and from the U.S. must be declared to the Fish and Wildlife Service for 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 wildlife and obviously the USDA for plants, um, unless they're not listed. Of course, everything comes with a list, and so, some species are not list. Oh, obviously, most species aren't listed, but for those who, that are listed, um, th- we love our categories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, they have to be declared. So, uh, like I just said, animal and plant species are listed. Um, the animal species that are covered are basically any species protected by law. So the law can be domestic, tribal, and even international. So if that species is protected by one of those laws, um, it's it's covered under the Lacey Act. Um, and there have been several amendments to the Lacey Act. One of them was in 2012, and that amendment banned the importation and transportation of four species of constrictor snakes, um, which is good. Um, snakes are not pets, but anyway. Um, so th- there have been several amendments to the Lacey Act 
just to keep up with, um, you know, the dynamic nature of wildlife trade, you know, um, some species become more popular, some species become less popular, that sort of thing. But the most important amendment to the Lacey Act, and I know we're talking wildlife, but I wanted to mention this, the most important amendment was in 2008. And that amendment literally covers all plants, like any wild member of the plant kingdom that has been trafficked illegally, if it's in your hands, you've committed a federal crime. I wish they did that with with wildlife. Um, like like we were talking about yeah. CITES. Like, yeah, it just needs to be blanket across exactly, the board. Exactly, blanket across the board. So, um, so yeah, that was one, a very important amendment to the Lacey Act. Um, and uh, as I said, this is a piece of federal legislation. It becomes a federal crime. Um, and so there are steep penalties, um, or at least there should be. We'll, t- we'll talk a little bit more about the courts later. But um, so that's the Lacey Act. It's, it's the most important act in the United States fighting against animal trafficking um, in and out of this country and across straight lines. I wanted to mention real quick um, a couple of less broad-reaching acts, which include uh, the Shark Fin Trade Elimination Act of 2017, which I, even, I hadn't even heard of. Um, yeah, uh, until I was doing this research. So that's awesome. So that that's brand new. In fact, it's, it probably hasn't even been implemented yet. It was just passed in 2017. Um, and that just, yeah. um, as it says in its name, it makes it entirely illegal to trade in shark fins um, in the United States, import, export, cross state lines, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and just in case you don't know, shark fins are a prized commodity for shark fin soup, um, again, in Asia, but um, also for the diet. We should do an episode on sharks. We should, like, do something about the ocean. Yeah, we should. I love sharks. Yeah, yeah, we do talk a lot. We do talk a lot about terrestrial wildlife and less about marine wildlife, so we definitely have to. Um, Another act, this one was passed in 2016. Uh, It's a long name. It's the Eliminate, Neutralize, and Disrupt Wildlife Trafficking Act. Um, And... This is less broad-reaching than the Lacey Act, um, but pretty broad. Um, and what's special about this act is that it defines trafficking as both poaching and trading. So um, for them, trafficking is is all across the board. It covers the entire market from the poacher to um, to the consumer. So I think that's... Obviously, semantically, there's a distinction, and um, on the ground, there's a distinction between poaching and trading, but I like that they just were like, you know what, we're just going to include all of it under trafficking. Because there's, it is, basically. It, yeah, they're contributing to yeah. that, that. Yeah, exactly. Process, that industry, they're, they're part of yeah, it. Yeah. Um, no matter what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. So, and the last one I wanted to mention is the Wildlife Tracking Enforcement Act. Um, this is not yet an act. It's still a bill. It was introduced in 2015. And this bill calls for harsher penalties and more protections to trafficked wildlife. So um, if you're really interested, I would I would look up the bill, contact your senators, all that good stuff. Um, it, it would be a really important one to, to pass because um, as we're about to talk about um, enforcement and uh, the justice system, you know, there are some... Uh, gaps uh, that a lot of cases fall through. Uh, so yeah. So moving on to enforcement. 
Um, in the U.S., we have this task force called the Interagency Task Force on Wildlife Trafficking. It is co-chaired by the Departments of State, Interior, and Justice, and all the relevant agencies therein, uh, in all those departments, there are 17 of them that work together to fight illegal wildlife trafficking. Um, the task force is in charge of enforcing the END Act, which was the Illumin Eliminate, Neutralize, and Disrupt Wildlife Trafficking Act that I mentioned. Um, so that's what this task force um, is in charge of. Uh, it's a huge task force, obviously, 17 agencies. Um, other operations include Operation Crash, um, which is uh, co-administrated between the Fish and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Department of Justice. That one's specifically against rhino horn and ivory smuggling. Um, it's one of the more well-known ones, I think. Um, it's in the news a lot, uh, Operation Crash. It also just has like a really memorable name. Uh, also, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is actually really involved in efforts uh, overseas, in, in global efforts. And they have law enforcement attaches in China, Gabon, Thailand, Tanzania, Botswana, and Peru at the moment. And these, these law enforcement attaches basically um, assist in creating and administering programs in those countries um, if they are struggling with, with law enforcement programs. And there's operate, and they they also um, just to mention them in relation to pangolins. They are like very involved in the issue of pangolin trafficking. Um, so much so, I was in when I was in South Africa. Um, one of the guys that I knew is the chair of the pangolin working group, and they, so they had this pangolin working group. Um, meeting or conference there and I went to it and there were people from U.S. Fish and Wildlife there um, talking about their work especially in Central Africa with addressing the issue of, of pangolin trade and so not only are they just working on you know wildlife trade in general mm -hmm. but they they f are very involved in the pangolin stuff because they recognize it's such a huge right, issue so yeah it's pretty it's pretty cool to yeah see that's that. cool um, so another operation is Operation Thunderbird, and this is in cooperation with the International Consortium to Combat Wildlife Crime, which Jonah mentioned in a previous episode. Um, and it's, or, or I should say it was in co cooperation because it was, uh, really just a month long blitz operation, really intensive blitz operation, raiding operation across 60 countries, um, around the world. And these were, this was a huge operation done at, um, important trade ports and trade hubs in those countries, um, to seize, uh, trafficked wildlife and, and animal parts and to hopefully, um, catch those responsible. And, um, yeah, so that was, a, that was one, one big global effort. Um, several, um, and of course, there are also several programs employing the U.S. Agency for International Deployment, USAID, as it's known. Um, and these programs provide um, training, support, and partnership in enforcement efforts. Um, so similar to the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service attaches, um, but um, a different program. So 
There are so many domestic and international programs that I can't list them all. Those are a few of many. So I'm going to, I'm going to post a link um, to the state website that, or the government website that I found a lot of these from um, so that our listeners can check them out. Um, and you should, because they're really interesting. Yeah. And those are just, those are just um, like government organized mm-hmm. programs. We, I think in a couple, in the past couple episodes, we've maybe mentioned an organization here or there, like Conservation South Luangwa that's involved with enforcement of poaching and trafficking and stuff. Um, but I mean, you could go online and you could find so many more. Um, some of the some of the big ones that you'd probably read about are like World Wildlife Fund's different programs on wildlife trafficking or Wildlife Conservation Society. Um, or one organization that uh, I was remiss to not mention last week when we were talking about poaching enforcement is Wildlife Crime Prevent- Prevention, which is an organization based in Zambia. Um, and they do really awesome work in Zambia um, and involved with um, not only enforcement, but also with um legislation or not not creating legislation but um working with the judges and stuff to um in trials to make sure that um proper penalties are are given and and they're just involved in the the judicial 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 system there um in in helping them specifically with combating the wildlife crime there um, but kind of returning back to the United States, just because that's where we are from and we have a lot of information about that. Um, there's obviously, uh, and this isn't just only in the United States, there's all, always room for improvement. Um, and particularly the trade in live animals and animal products from Mexico into the U.S. is a is a huge issue, um, especially because a lot of animals from Central and South America are very popularly trafficked species, and so they're coming up from the South up in the United States where um, there's a huge demand. Like I think Mariana mentioned in the beginning that um, the United Kingdom and the United States are um, big players in this. So, um, anyways, it it gets kind of crazy down near um, the border in Texas, um, where I was just at actually a couple weeks ago looking across the Rio Grande into Mexico. Um, wildlife smugglers will swim across the Rio Grande with their contraband and, um, to smuggle it into the United States because if you don't know, the Rio Grande makes up the border for a significant part of the Texas-Mexico border. Um, And one smuggler, (laughs) this was crazy, one smuggler was caught crossing, swimming across the river with 25 live parrots to be sold stateside. He had the like, the cages all like fitted with rafts and stuff. Um, And in that environment down there, it's, it's, probably fairly easy to do that just because it's a you know kind of thick brushy area um 
easy to go undetected, especially because there's, well, not that there's not a lot of, um, uh, there's obviously a lot of border patrol agents down there. Um, but when we're talking about agents that are specifically focused on the wildlife trade issue down there, um, that's where there's a lot of room for improvement. Um, especially because Southern Texas is a hotspot for trade. Um, so the city of Brownsville, which is the Texas city that's right on the border down there, um, they only have one full-time inspector for three bridges that cross from Mexico into the United States. And then there's one other agent that's 50 miles away on the border. So that basically means two wildlife trade-specific agents for 325 miles of border. Um, and that, and their responsibilities are not only, you know, catching illegal wildlife trade, but also monitoring and regulating the legal wildlife trade. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, making sure people have the permits that they need and stuff. And this is where we talked about earlier. It kind of makes enforcement difficult because obviously they know like the legislation, they know their stuff, these agents, but, um, really like we we've said like all wildlife just there just needs to, it all needs to be illegal because um there's gray areas and there's obviously room for error and there's also you know ways for manipulation and stuff like that and so it it just makes their job really complex when they're dealing with so much illegal and so much legal wildlife trade down there um and just not provided with enough enforcement officers in, in an area that's a known hotspot. Um, anyways, um, and, and just like the sheer volume of animals and products coming in through U.S. ports every day um, across the entire country puts a, a strain on all the agencies involved, like the USDA, Fish and Wildlife Service, NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the FBI, the DEA, Interpol, Customs and Border Protection, um, like you know, all these agencies, and we're probably missing some. Just the the size of this trade puts a huge strain on the on these agencies that already have other responsibilities, um, and I don't think that making across the board all wildlife trade illegal would make the responsibilities any easier but i think it might simplify yeah their their tasks and, and duties um and obviously like i already said these people know the laws and they know their jobs but um it, you know it just be you see a wild animal it's you know it's illegal right. it's just easier that way i think yeah i agree um but I'm not a law enforcement person, so maybe that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> Logically, it makes sense to me. Yeah. But, um, and, you know, so these the people in these agencies are involved in, you know, confiscating all these seized animal, live animals and products that we've been talking about. And, and all these examples where we're talking about, oh, this many um, parrots seized here and there. These animals and these products have to go somewhere. And... Because of the sheer volume, it that's a huge challenge, especially when we're talking about live animals. 
because what do you do with whatever a uh, hundred tortoises that were just found in a suitcase where do you put them and make sure that they're cared for properly and stuff you, you don't know where they came from you can't just ship them back right uh, and actually i remember when we were at unity um and i was the president of the humble herpetology club <laughs> the Inland Fisheries and Wildlife Wardens wanted to work with us because they get a lot of confiscated reptiles and amphibians and they don't, they have a place where they can send them, but they get so many that they, they can't keep up and they need people to maybe take care of them or something. So they were trying to set up like a partnership with the Herpetology Club at Unity. I don't know whatever came, became of it, but, um, cause there's people there that are knowledgeable in keeping, uh, herps, um, because they just have so many live animals that they, what are they supposed to do with yeah. them? And it's mostly they have to keep, they obviously can't just, you know, dispose of them or euthanize them or whatever. It has to do with um, like the trials that these people that the animals are confiscated from. They Those animals are evidence. Mm-hmm. So they need to be kept around as evidence. Right. You get rid of them or go send them back. You you don't have a, a good trial. You need them as evidence, and that means you have to keep them somewhere, and that's a huge challenge. Same with the illegal wildlife products. Um, you know, many of the products that are collected are never even investigated or tracked to their source. So even though they may be kept as evidence, we don't know the information necessary to understand the trade better isn't collected. You know, like I like you said earlier, identifying trade routes and things. Sometimes it's just impossible. And actually, a lot of um, genetics work is really helping to address this issue. And um, we do have a wildlife forensic lab in the country, although we only have one of them in Ashland, Oregon. That's um, run by the Fish and Wildlife Service. We should have them in every in each corner of the yeah. United States, just based on the size of this issue. But um, a lot of these animal products are stored in places like that or these, this other, um, I think there's like a warehouse or there's some place in Colorado. Oh, yes. I think I know what you're talking about. It's like a repository of sorts. Yes. Yeah. For wildlife, seized wildlife products yep. specifically. They have like whole entire stuffed tigers, mm-hmm. like ridiculous stuff. Yeah. Um, and they keep it there. And that's, you know, this is that. That stuff's easier to store than live animals because that repository is kept. And then when the person goes to trial, they can, you know, request that the stuff that was confiscated from that repository. Um, But anyways, back to kind of how we can, the advances in technology that are allowing us to, you know, track trade and sources a little better. Um, Genetics is is huge because you can... um, you know, test the DNA from certain animal products or from live animals and tell what's, if there's information available from the source populations, you can say, okay, this, this tiger skin came from India or whatever, like, uh, and then you can, with, you know, all the data, you can say, say, okay, most of the um, tiger skins that we're confiscating are coming from India. So that's like a, that's a big source compared to Nepal, where they've really cracked down and their tiger population is growing or whatever. Uh, And this is, you could read a lot about this online. There's tons of articles that are talking about this sort of genetic frontier of understanding wildlife trade. And 
identifying trade routes and stuff. It's it's a really um, really cool stuff. Um, and I also think we mentioned in our technology episode um, as another example for understanding trade routes and stuff. Um, the there's this there's this like sea turtle egg that is a GPS tracker and they um, it's it's like a it's basically a, a GPS device that's disguised as a sea turtle egg because people traffic sea turtle eggs and then they when people poach sea turtle nests then the the egg you know goes with the rest of the the false egg goes with all the real eggs and then it they're able to track where it's going and they can understand um, just trade routes better. Um, anyway, so that's another cool advance in technology that's helping with this. Um, but also it's difficult because our, our courts just can't keep up because there's so many of these cases. And this isn't, this is the case with the United States and other countries. Um, just because so many cases fall through the cracks because either they're not prosecuted properly or they never even make it to court. And this is actually where um, Wildlife Crime Prevention, that organization in Zambia that I mentioned, mm -hmm. they really are focused on this in Zambia, making sure that these um, trials actually go to court and that they're tried properly and that the evidence, you know, the, the support and the training and stuff that they provide to law enforcement um, is important so that, you know, anti-poaching scouts actually understand the laws so that they are preserving the crime scene. Because, um, you know, you find a poached elephant or something, that is a crime scene. And it's really important to understand that. And, you know, I didn't really understand that until I took this um, poisoning workshop over there. And we learned, you know, if you come across a, a poisoned animal, you, know, you don't touch things like it is a crime scene. You need to leave all the evidence there and let professionally trained people do this because it's really important for it to be tried in court that the, the evidence is is sound and hasn't been tampered with. And the same thing goes with here in the United States. And that's why it's important to keep these live animals and these animal products so that they can be, um, these people can be prosecuted properly. Um, a lot of time, another issue that is pretty common is that foreign national offenders are often deported. Um, and then that means that their cases aren't really followed up on when they get back to their home countries. Um, that's a big issue. And I think diminishes the significance of their crimes yeah. when the, their countries don't take it as seriously because obviously the crime wasn't affecting their country. So their country is probably not going to care as much. You know, here we are back here. It's like, you know, they are committing a crime in our country and, you know, taking or destroying our resources. Um, so, you know, a sad summary is that in most cases, any decreases in the illegal trade of a particular species aren't necessarily thanks to law enforcement. Um, you know, even though it's an important part of it and you can listen to part two, our last episode, where we talk more about enforcement of poaching. Um, but, you know, mostly decreases in trade are going to probably result from just plummeting availability of the species in the wild from over-exploitation, which is why I'm surprised at some of the statistics we listed earlier that 
there's still so many of these animals being trafficked that the wild populations have been able to sustain it. But, you know, it's not going to be like that forever. Yeah. Um, um, so this is, you know, this is just kind of how deficient we find ourselves on the national and international stage of this issue. Um, and that's it. The end. It's all bad. <laughs> Yeah, so we had a lot to say, um, and believe it or not, this was as brief as we could <laughs> make ourselves on this issue. And we did actually just, I mean, most most of the stuff we talked about, we just skimmed the surface. Um, but um, as, as I said last episode, we wanted to go ahead and close out our series on poaching for now. I'm sure we'll have other, a positive, we'll have other discussions on, on poaching and trafficking um, later on in our podcast. But um yeah, we hope this has been um, informative or and thought provoking. That's what we really want is to be thought provoking. So yeah, yeah, um, and no sustainability tip this week. Other than that, just don't keep wild pets, animals as pets. That's that's all you need to know. <laughs> yes. Um, um, yeah. So yeah, if if you have any questions or comments about poaching, um, we'd love to share them on the podcast. So. Connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Conservation Chronicles. Um, I wrote Twitter again. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a Twitter, although, you know, I've been thinking, I don't know anything about Twitter. I don't know if you have a personal Twitter, but we might be able to get a greater following if we have a yeah, Twitter. Yeah, okay, I'll look into it, yeah. I keep saying Twitter. Because not that we have so much time to, like, post right. Twitter yeah. every, like, like, five Twitter posts a day, yeah. but... You know, with Instagram and Facebook, we, we're we only doing it like a couple times a week. And I think we might be missing an opportunity to like get more audience members. Yeah. Um, anyways, anyways, uh, we don't have a Twitter yet, but you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, yeah, and let us know what you think about this issue of poaching or um, future episode topics that you'd like us to cover or whatever. Um we want to hear from you. And you can also download our other episodes that we'll be talking about on our website at conservationchronicles.podme.com or whatever other podcast platform you get your podcast from. 